Hello and welcome to the Archbishop's Corner. This is where we meet each week to talk with Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair about faith, morals, the life of the church today, and how the gospel makes sense in an ever-changing world. This is where we go to find the answers to our lingering questions about the teachings of the church, living the faith life of a Catholic in contemporary society, and developing a stronger relationship with God. I'm Father John Gatzak, with many questions that you and I will ask Archbishop Blair as he responds to what matters to you in the Archbishop's Corner. When you are attached to the way things are, it is very difficult to put your faith in anything else. You do not trust yourself to risk experiencing anything other than what you already know. You do not trust life to bring you the results or rewards you desire. You do not trust that you can and will handle whatever comes your way. Without trust, there can be no faith. Without faith, you will hold on to what you know. In the process, you will not be making any progress. Attachment is another way of saying, I don't have faith in anything else. I know what this is. I can handle this. You want to control your experiences and your responses. You see, rather than fight with you for control, life will send you into the pit of stagnation. This can be extremely painful. Attachment reflects a lack of faith in your ability to learn. Learning takes place three ways. You learn by force, you learn by choice, you learn by being forced to make a choice. When you are attached to what you know or what you can control, chances are you will be forced to make a choice. You can choose to stay attached and be stagnated in pain and confusion, or you can let go in faith that your next experience will be exactly what you need but did not know you needed. Until today, you may have been holding on, attached to the way things are. In the Archbishop's Corner is where Archbishop Leonard Blair helps you open up your heart to the possibility that there is something great waiting for you. Here is where you can be comfortable to let go of anything or anyone you are attached to, freeing you in faith so that you will be pleasantly surprised. So thank you, Archbishop Blair, for helping us stretch faith beyond what we know to a greater and grander experience of becoming faith-filled and fear-free. Happy Pentecost Sunday. How are you? Thank you. I like that idea of stretching your faith. Something that we should all do, and our parishes are open 100% on this Feast of Pentecost, which concludes the Easter season, by the way, right? Yes. And we hold this feast in high regard as it's believed that this was the beginning of the church where the apostles received the Holy Spirit and were enlivened with the burning desire to fearlessly share the faith and build up the church. I'm, I'm wondering, Archbishop, what are your thoughts on this Pentecost when for the first time in over a year since this coronavirus hit hard, our churches are fully open for 100% participation? Well, let me begin by saying I'm very happy about that. I, I would back up for just a moment, theologically, spiritually. You referred to Pentecost as the birthday of the church, and that is traditionally what we call it. But it's complemented by the the theology and the spirituality uh, from the fathers of the church of how the church was born from the wounded side of Christ, that the blood and water that came out of his pure side are the symbols of baptism and the Eucharist. And so the church derives her life from that pure side of Christ on the cross. Certainly not wrong to speak of Pentecost as the birthday of the church in as much as 
those apostles who were locked up in fear in the upper room, once they received the tongues of flame on their heads and the wind of the Holy Spirit, they went out and preached Christ from the rooftops and began, mm. began to actually carry on the mission of the church, uh, of which we are the beneficiaries after all these centuries later. And of course, when you look at the history of the church for 2,000 years, the church has experienced absolutely everything. And I, should, I think it should be haunting to us, the fact that in the world there are places where the church once thrived and was alive, where now it is all but absent. You know, I think of the Middle East, of all the many places where Christianity was uh, growing very rapidly, and then the rise of Islam, and the fact that uh, Christianity in those regions was largely wiped out. Uh, you know, I think today, and some people might not like me to say it, but you look at Europe, that was once a great heartland of Christianity, that now in many respects is becoming so secularized and people are abandoning the actual practice of the faith so much that one has to ask if Christianity is still really a part of the identity of the people of Europe. Now, don't get me wrong, there are many very faithful Catholics and Christians in Europe, but as a society, as a culture, as a kind of driving force or governing reality, serious questions have been raised. And even in our country, you know, well, we have to ask... That's what I was going to ask you. Is this a yes, foreboding of what's really coming headed. here? Well, I think the wind is coming. It's interesting that in Europe, after the fall of communism, how even very traditional Catholic cultures like Poland are now being swept by the winds of secularism, and much of it expo exported from places like the United States, uh, about... Uh, uh, abandoning uh, the, the morality of the uh, that the church is taught uh, about marriage. You know, now, lest this sound too ominous, the church in many other places is strong and continues to be missionary. Uh, similarly, even in Europe, even in the United States, even, well, the Mid Mideast is another matter, but uh, the, the church uh, is still very much alive, so I don't want to make it sound like it's the end of the world, uh, because Christ will be preached until the end to all the nations. But when you talk about Pentecost, you also have to talk about a new Pentecost in our time. That's what Pope John, uh, Saint Pope John the Twenty-Third, and Pope Paul the Sixth, and all popes since then have spoken about, that the Second Vatican Council was to meant to renew the church, not for its own sake internally alone, but for a missionary impulse. All of us have to become missionaries of Christ. We always have been by our baptism and confirmation, but have to take that in a new way in the kind of world that I've been describing. We do believe that the Holy Spirit is alive and well and dwelling among us today. Oh, so, absolutely, yes. So this new Pentecost that you speak of could be a reality. Why is it not then? Well, it is a reality. There are many good things that are happening. But when you take a culture that was largely Judeo-Christian and then it becomes secularized, you know, that, that all the things that built up the customs and, and learning and culture of a country or a, a nation or a people suddenly become secularized, then you have to ask what has become of the faith, uh, the truth of the gospel that's meant to inspire the life of people. And, of course, you look at Christian culture through the centuries and you see that the Christian faith had created a culture 
of art, of learning, of social life, of uh, values, uh, if you will. So that's what a new Pentecost is all about. Think, think of the of the Catholic Christian culture of family life, uh, mm-hmm. and how real is that, and how effective and actually practiced is that by people today. Um, it's under a lot of stress and uh, a world that that pulls people away from the truth of the gospel when it comes to these things. It's uh, a very challenging situation, so we can't just pretend it's you know, 1950 again, where the church and the world were the way they are, or were, they're, they're not that way anymore. The reality, Christ has promised to be with us until the end of time. And it's our job with the gift of the Holy Spirit in baptism and confirmation to be uh, missionary disciples, as Pope Francis puts it. So there is then a poignancy in praying the prayer today on this Feast of Pentecost Come, Holy Spirit, come. There's a lot of work to be done. Yes, and the Holy Spirit is not uh, doesn't fail. God doesn't fail in providing the graces. But, you know, we are always told that Jesus promised us that the, our, the church's way in this world is always the way of the cross. We have to be very attentive to that, you know. Wherever the church has become established and, uh, and powerful and rich, inevitably— that is brought down uh, at a certain point. It's happened through history. Where everywhere where that's happened, uh, there has been a, a reaction and where, where the church has to start over again with Christ. Tomorrow, the 24th of May, we celebrate the memorial of the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of the Church. And this feast was formally integrated into the church by the authority of Pope Francis back in 2018. Upon creating the feast... Pope Francis said he wished to, and I quote, encourage the growth of the maternal sense of the church in the pastors, religious and faithful, as well as a growth of genuine Marian piety. Archbishop, what do you believe he means in saying he wished to encourage the growth of the maternal sense of the church? Well, first of all, let me back up for a moment. It was Pope Paul VI that at the uh, end of the council uh, entrusted, I believe uh, is what he did, entrusted uh, the church to Mary as mother of the church, Mater Ecclesiae. And even one of the uh, side altars in St. Peter's Basilica uh, was uh, redecorated a little bit with a, an ancient icon, uh, but under the inscription was placed Mater Ecclesiae, it was Mary, mother of the church. So what Pope Francis has done is take that uh uh, that title, that that understanding of Mary, and what better time to commemorate it more widely than the very day after Pentecost? Because, as you said, uh, you know, uh, it's it's considered the birthday of the Church, and so the very next day we have Mary as the mother of the Church, um, and and of course that's very scriptural too. That at the foot of the cross in the Gospel of John, when Jesus says to uh, Mary, "Behold your son." And he says to John the Apostle, Behold your mother. Uh, the church has always understood this not just as their personal uh, thing. You know, n- nothing in the Gospels, uh, in God's revelation to us in Scripture is just about that. But it's far more profound that John, uh, the beloved disciple, represents the church and the whole church in his person is being entrusted to Mary. Um, and, and she, in turn, is being given uh, the responsibility of motherhood, a maternal uh, role 
to play over John and therefore over the whole church. And so it's very beautiful. And, and really. Pope Francis, in, in saying that he wished to encourage the growth of the maternal sense of the church means? The church is not an it. The church is a she. And that, you know, in this day and age when there's so much ideology um, and redefinition, attempted redefinition of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman, or even trying to erase the distinction and say that, you know, we just create ourselves uh, as if we were God into uh, what we want to be, how important it is to appreciate that there is a, a difference between men and women that is God-given, just as in the scriptures in the New Testament, they talk about Christ the bridegroom and the church the bride. St. Paul talks about this. Well, obviously, the church has this maternal uh, feminine dimension of being the bride of Christ. You know, the Bible starts in, in Genesis with the creation of man and woman and their union in marriage. And the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation or the Apocalypse, ends with this wedding banquet in heaven between the, the lamb who was slain, Christ, and his bride, the church. These are not just poetic symbols. These speak to us about the very reality of who we are and who the church is. On Wednesday, the 26th of, of the month, we celebrate the memorial of St. Philip Neri, an Italian priest known as the Apostle of Joy and the Third Apostle of Rome. And throughout his ministry in Rome, he stressed the importance of joy in the life of a disciple of Jesus. His own joy and humility attracted people from every walk of life to him and ultimately to Christ. Don't you think that that's one of the keys to successful evangelization today, joy? Yes, well, Pope Francis uh, uh, wrote his uh, encyclical there, The Joy of the Gospel, Evangelii Gaudium. That was his, was his very first uh, words to us, you know, about the joy of the gospel. And St. Philip in his day uh, was certainly a, I mean, he was a, a very, uh, in a way, recollected, devout person, but he had a very uh, winning uh, personality that projected joy and not, you know, I think, Pope Francis would say, not a sourpuss kind of, of, yeah. uh, of uh, uh, ministry. And it's true, because, you know, Pope Francis does talk that way, you know, about us being, not being a bunch of sourpusses going around uh, instead of the, the joy of, of the gospel. And, of course, Jesus talks about this, that his joy uh, in us will be complete. When we talk about joy, that's not the same thing as a kind of silliness or, a, how would you put it, kind of a a joking kind of way about everything. That's not what joy is. Joy is very profound, and it projects itself in a way that brightens people up, uh, that brings them good news, even when it's calling them to, to change their lives, uh, to, to turn away from sin and believe the gospel. We're not being uh, inviting them to some dour thing. We're invite, inviting them to some a joyful thing. And how important um, that is, of course, during this pandemic time in which we have been living for the past year and several months. Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, people need, if only we can, with God's grace, persuade them to be reunited, not just at work and in a restaurant or a bowling alley or the mall, but to reunite it at a far more profound level in church on Sunday with other people in the body of Christ. Of course, it also is a challenge to the way we celebrate our liturgies, you know, what kind of preaching they hear 
from their priest, what kind of uh, reverence uh, and, and beauty they see in the way Mass is celebrated and where it's celebrated. These things are meant to give joy, not to be a brute, uh, dull obligation. And uh, I mean, we're all human. We're not always going around, you know, whistling a tune. Sometimes we, we can be down about things, but uh, there is a joy that, that uh, Jesus says. It's not a joy that this world gives, that he gives, and that, that can't be taken from us. Well, as we get back to 100% capacity in our churches uh, beginning this weekend, is there anything that you want to bring up in terms of what we should be doing in our parishes again? Because this pandemic is not completed. It's not ended. We don't all of a sudden bring back the normal, the way things were in the past. We still have to be careful, especially if, if one has not been vaccinated. Well, it is a complex problem, and I see it in the, in the news, you know, about other things, certainly not just church. We always have followed the civil guidelines that we've been given. Now there's some confusion about masks or no masks or whatever. So I have told our priests, as you know, that we are free now to, to open back up, minus many of the restrictions that were placed on us. But I did say that we still should follow certain cautions about the way we distribute communion, mm-hmm. uh, the fact that about singing, that we, we, can, we should only sing with a mask on. Now, even as I say these things, you know, things are changing, and it's not always possible to keep absolutely on top of everything that's being said. So I, I would, my general observation is that while we, should, we are open and we have a certain liberty, we still should exercise a certain caution in church I don't think it's too much to ask for people to continue to wear masks in church. I think it's better to be a little bit more cautious, uh, and and we remain cautiously optimistic about the future, than to uh, than to to uh, just throw off everything all of a sudden. You know, I can't speak now for other venues. I'm just speaking about for church. Yeah. Well, let's take a look now at our Gospel reading on this Pentecost Sunday. Our Gospel is taken from John's Gospel, the 20th chapter. So here's the Gospel account as it is dramatically presented, after which we're going to ask you, Archbishop, what your thoughts are. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. Peace be with you. When he had said this, He showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. What inspiring thoughts do you have for us on our gospel today, Archbishop? Well, I think in years past, we've even had an opportunity to comment on this gospel. But I suppose the one I would, uh, the verse I would concentrate on today is, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Now, we say the church is apostolic, and he said these words to the apostles, in that upper room uh, at Easter. But we understand all of us uh, have an apostolic mission by our baptism. Yes, the successors of the apostles, the bishops, teachers of the faith, we have a particular responsibility. But those words 
As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Those words apply to every person. It, and it, this is, follows perfectly from what we were talking about a moment ago, missionary discipleship. Yeah. We Catholics don't have a strong sense of that at all. Uh, you know, we keep our faith to ourselves, kind of, uh, but we don't have a sense of, of mission, of going out and inviting people to join us in our faith. But we need to have that conversion. We need to develop that kind of uh, mentality. Because as I've said many times before, the greatest charity you can bring to someone is not food, clothing, and shelter, as important and even essential as they are. The greatest love you can show for another person is to bring them to faith in Christ and to the the shared life of the sacraments in the church. That's the greatest uh, charity and greatest gift you can bring. And I know many Catholic people's hearts ache that their family members, maybe their own children, are falling away from the practice of the faith. And we have to do everything we can uh, lovingly and joyfully to, to change that. But also the wider community, you know, uh, the places where we work, our neighbors, to be missionary disciples. And just like the apostles were sent out on this mission, we're sent out on this mission, but they were not alone, and neither are we alone in this mission, because the Holy Spirit accompanies us as well, does he not? Absolutely. And, you know, the, 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 the apostles had this special role, the special calling, the special place in the, in the life of the church, and we, bishops who are their successors, uh, we we have that responsibility. But remember, the apostles were accompanied, helped, aided, and in every way by the company of believers, you know, all of those uh, people who were one in heart and mind and prayer as a community in living their faith and bringing it to other people. Let's uh, take a look at some of the questions that our listeners have submitted. For instance... Jen from New Haven says, with so many changes regarding Catholic schools in the archdiocese, how can I, as a mother, remain confident that the decision I make to send my child to a Catholic school is the right one? Well, Jen, that's a very uh, good and thoughtful question. And, you know, you're being very polite by saying so many changes. You know, the reality is that there have been a number of closings. But I also want to be quick to point out that we've also... Uh, have engaged in a number of new initiatives that are proving to be successful, uh, but they always require the constant support, financial and otherwise, of uh, parents and the community. So I think, first of all, to send your, your, your child to Catholic school is always the right decision. Uh, if you're, and I'm sure you are, if you're, you're doing it for the right reason, namely not just because of this or that uh, comparison with the public schools, but for the handing on of the faith, for the, for the whole atmosphere that's imbued with the faith. Now, in the choice of a school, I think it's important as a, for parents to be involved and to be engaged, to, uh, to understand what is going on in the school, to take a good look uh, at how the school is being supported. You know, to send your child to a Catholic school and then find out a year later that it's, you know, having a huge deficit every year that it's not being attended to, that is, you know, that creates its own problems. Now, let me be quick to say that uh, we really are working with the schools right now to make sure that that does not happen. You know, it's very interesting 
that uh, Father Michael White, who besides being a busy pastor of a large parish, has also agreed to serve as the uh, head of our our, uh, uh, school's office with evangelization and catechesis. But he and his staff have initiated this come-to-the-table meetings, they call it, where they, in, in their Catholic schools, are bringing parents together to have a real presentation of where the school's at, what its challenges are, what its finances are, and all of that stuff. And this is proving to be very, very helpful. So, Jen, I would say the, the most important thing you can do is to be engaged personally in sending your child to a Catholic school. And if you do that, and it's combined with the efforts we're making to keep parishioners and school parents informed and pastors exactly what their challenges are and where they're at, then I think you'd be, you'd be on the right track. Is it fair then to say that where Catholic school parents are engaged with the school, the school flourishes? Well, maybe I'd nuance that. Where par- parents, Catholic school parents and the parishioners are monitoring carefully and responsibly what, what, what the situation of the school is, then there's a far greater chance for that school uh, to, to do well and, and to make it. Now, I have to say, too, there are instances where schools have closed, where the priests and the people, and, and they tried their very best, but you can't have a Catholic school without kids. And if the enrollment just becomes so low, then, then, then it becomes very difficult, if not impossible, to continue. But I think the point that the, for Jen is that, yes, that we, that we are facing uh, situations, financial and demographic, that, that parents have to be attentive to. But if they are, and they play their part, and they make a positive contribution, that bodes well for the, for the continuing success of a given school. And I must say, too, that you know there was a big article in the paper, I think it was the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, about this huge number of, of schools in the, across the country, Catholic schools, that are closing. Well, I shouldn't say huge, but a troubling number. But by the same token, during COVID, we've actually, I think it's fair to say, we've had great success. And a, and a lot of parents have become interested in our sending their kids to a Catholic school because during COVID, we were able to provide in-person learning successfully. People like that. Uh, so th- it's a mixed picture. You know, there are challenges uh, but there, and problems, but there are also bright spots. And also, too, I can't invite our listeners m- enough to stand up and be counted with our state legislators, you know, that there's, compared to other states, we're now new, all kinds of laws are, are, are being passed, making it possible for uh, people to put money aside or to to have some financial help in sending their kids to a Catholic school. But in Connecticut, it's very, 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 very little. And uh, we need to, you know, we need to, to stand up and be counted and let our legislators know that this is not fair. Absolutely. If, if we let all of our Catholic kids, uh, if we sent them to the public schools, it would create an enormous burden to the public school uh, and the cities, the, the cost, far more than it costs us to, to educate these children. And, you know, we tried to even just get cross-district busing for our Catholic school kids because if we, you know, are uh, trying to consolidate schools, that'd be a big help. We got almost nothing. I think one 
one district for sure, and I think a second one in the whole state. You've got me started here, Jen, with talking about schools. I feel very strongly about this. You know, when I was a bishop in Toledo in Ohio, we had an inner city school that did wonderful work, but every one of those children got a voucher from the state of $4,500 a year. And we we still had to raise a half million dollars from the church to to keep that school open, but we could do that. But uh, without the, the vouchers, it became uh, almost, well, it would have been impossible. Well, the question is, if Toledo could do it, why can't Hartford do it? It, it only has to do with the with the uh, the tenor of the state, with the with the will of the people, as in uh, on their elected representatives uh, to do something. Archbishop, we've come to the end of our time together, and I'd invite you to close the program with a prayer and a blessing, please. Lord, we are filled with the joy that only you can give—the joy that comes to us as a gift of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who gives us assurance that you, Lord Jesus, are the conqueror of sin and death, the assurance that by our baptism we are made members of your body, the assurance that if we are faithful and if we uh, live a life of faith, hope, and love, that one day we shall see your face in the joy of heaven. We ask you for renewed outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church of our Archdiocese of Hartford, that all of us may truly become Uh, evangelizing disciples, missionary disciples, who bear witness to the joy of the gospel, not only for our own salvation, but for the salvation of the world. And may Almighty God bless you all in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Archbishop, thank you for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner. Enjoy this week, and we look forward to joining you again next Sunday, same time. Thank you.